As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hi, hello, how are you doing? Thank you for tuning in. Welcome. This is the Athletic Football Podcast with me, Ali Maxwell, and with us today, Michael Cox and Tom Warville, the usual duo tactics and analytics writers for The Athletic, respectively. And this week on the show, some match analysis from Paris Saint-Germain to Manchester City nil. We will be wondering about Wolverhampton, taking a look at what Potter is sculpting in Brighton and indeed Hove. And we'll be having a frank discussion about Brentford. Yep, the guys have opened their notebooks once again. Tom Warville's has squared paper to suit his number note-taking. And Michael's has lined paper to foster his tactical prose. Whereas mine is completely blank and ready to be filled in with the insight, analysis and opinion of Michael and Tom. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Hi, Ali. Very well. Yeah, and all the better for hearing you call the team Wolverhampton, which no one ever does, and also Brighton and Hove as a mere place name without the Albion. I quite like that. You're mm. saying West Bromwich next if we discuss <laughs> them, which I quite like. I'm all about the specifics, as you well know. Welcome back to the pod, Tom Warville. Did you have a nice holiday? Thanks, Ali. Yeah, great uh, great time away to recharge the batteries. and Yeah, really fun and uh, a nice week of fixtures to come back to as well recharge the batteries who are you kidding san miguel making up 50 percent of your blood content level right now uh, we're going to ease you we're going to ease you back in to pod proceedings we'll, we'll ask michael first and foremost whether he watched psg2 man city nil last night tuesday night yeah i did i thought that was obviously the pick of the games um well i think in hindsight sheriff against real madrid maybe was the pick <laughs> of the games but i don't think too many people were expecting that kind of upset Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting game, actually, PSG Man City. I thought it was a contrast between two completely different teams in terms of how they're structured. And I also thought it was a somewhat unfair uh, scoreline on Manchester City, who I thought were much the better side throughout the 90 minutes. So in terms of the PSG tactical structure, as soon as Messi signed, we had four or five people tweet us specifically saying, I really want to know what they're going to do here. I'd like to know how Pochettino is going to try and get the best out of this front three and not only that build some semblance of structure behind them to create a complete football team 
And how's he doing it? This, I suppose, their, their, their first huge test so far this season. Yeah, exactly. I think that's why it was interesting. Um, I think some of the league home games are, as you imply, not much of a test. Obviously, the, the first Champions League game they, they drew against Bruges weren't at all good in that fixture. They've had a little bit more time on the training ground. It's interesting to see how they're doing things. I mean, no surprise that they're playing 4 3 3 with Messi and Mbappe and, and Neymar along the front line. Messi is playing on the right with Mbappe up front. I think those two conceivably could have gone the other way around. We know Messi can can play centrally and Mbappe can play out uh, out wide. And I think maybe that might make it a little bit more easy for them to actually connect midfield and attack, which I think was a problem at some stages. But the, it was almost like a, a parody of what you'd expect, their performance. I mean, <laughs> Neymar and Mbappe started off doing some defensive work. Neymar, I think, is generally quite good at tracking back. He gets a lot of stick for not doing that, but I think he does muck in. Mbappe was playing high up the pitch, so wasn't doing too much defending as you'd expect. But, I mean, even having obviously watched him regularly for the last couple of years when he's not the most mobile, I was amazed how little Messi did without the ball. I mean, there was no attempt to even jog back into position. He would just switch off as if it wasn't his shift and leave it to other people. Um and I think that was a particular problem because Manchester City, when you look at their performance against Chelsea at the weekend, I thought one of the most creative players was João Cancelo from left-back. He was playing some brilliant passes through the defence. And all City's chances came from came from that flank, mainly from Cancelo, but also with De Bruyne drifting out there. And it was just so obvious that PSG had this gaping hole you know, on the right of their team. And uh, I think you look at the XG or whatever stats you want and City just created so many more chances than PSG and PSG got away with it. They'll get away with playing like this throughout Ligue 1 and throughout the group stage of the Champions League. But I just think if they if they play like that um, in the knockout stage of the Champions League, they could risk just getting a real thrashing because they were just, there was no compactness, there was no cohesion. And at times in the second half, you had this situation where the midfield were dropping right back onto the defence. And the system was almost like 7-0-3. I mean, there was just nothing in the centre of the pitch. Um, And it was very easy for City to sustain periods of dominance, albeit they couldn't turn that into goals. I'm interested to know about how they approach things in possession. Of course, once it reaches the final third, you'd think that the the quality of Messi, Mbappe, Neymar, as we saw on a few occasions, including Messi's marvellous, magnificent goal, will be enough to create chances, score goals. But in terms of getting the ball into the final third and into those quality players, you you described it on Twitter as a 4-3-0-3 formation. Uh, How did they do in terms of actually progressing the ball? Who was tasked with doing so? Were they going down the sides with Hakimi and Mendes, the fullbacks, or through the middle with that midfield three, Verratti, Ander Herrera and Idrissa Gay? Well, it was all a bit disjointed, really. Verratti obviously has a massive responsibility in terms of the build-up play. I think he had a really good game last night. Messi was drifting inside, I'd say more into midfield positions than between the lines, really. Um, and he's given licence to do that because Hakimi's so attacking and so good down the right. I mean, they made a lot of signings this summer, PSG, obviously quite high profile with Messi and Ramos and Donnarumma, but... I actually think Hakimi might be the the best signing actually for the long term. He's just, he's able to dominate the entire flank by himself. And that's obviously perfect for Messi. Just watching the highlights, I know that Gay did find himself in a good position to fire home for the first goal. But one of the themes that I noticed from PSG's play was Hakimi being the sort of fourth most attacking player outside of that front three almost. Yeah, he was. And he played a part in, in both goals. The first, because Messi and Mbappe 
formed a little passing triangle with him and the second because he made a really important overlapping run decoy run which took Jao Cancelo away and that created space for Messi to dribble into um yeah it wasn't the smoothest build-up play I didn't think Verratti has a lot of responsibility Gay and Herrera really are in the side as a couple of you know a couple of runners really to, to do the work that the others aren't doing um, but like I said, it was one of those things where, you know, I'm sure there'll be people who listen to this podcast who didn't see the game. Just imagine what you think it might have been like. <laughs> and it was pretty much like that. It was, yeah, I, I I still think Messi is the best player in the world. But I also remember the times when he was the best player in the world. And we also marveled over how the best player in the world was willing to sacrifice himself and willing to work and willing to press. And I know he can't do that physically anymore. But it was still, I, I found it a little bit sad kind of writing a report like, you know, Messi, he's a he's a almost a weak link, but does something sensational. That's the player he is now. He's a moments player. And the tactical battle is no longer based around stopping him. I think the tactical battle last night was really about City exploiting his, his weakness, really. I liked how many uh, individual battles there were across the pitch last night. Mainly, I mean, Neymar and, and Kyle Walker. I feel we've seen that one before, but that was um, there was a good, you know, few instances where Neymar started to look to go down the outside of Walker and just realised he's absolutely not got the pace for it and had to check back inside. But the one that I found most interesting, I mean, Michael just touched on there about um, Hakimi being, a, you know, a very very solid player and one of their more eye-catching signings. Um, well, I know it's hard to be too eye-catching behind Lionel Messi, but he definitely is. Um, but I thought Nuno Mendes did a pretty decent job against Riyad Mahrez last night. Um, he was the youngest player on the pitch, and he's someone who was quite well hyped in the summer. Um, for I guess he was picked for Portugal at the year, at the Euros. Um, we've always thought of him as kind of a very attacking wing back and someone that that City actually had on their radar uh, at one stage. Um, but I thought we saw his defensive prowess at times. Um, did really well to kind of control Riyad Mahrez, who's one of the elite dribblers in the game. Um, he's also a, a master of those kind of disguised passes inside. And I think that Mendes was able to read the signs of those at times too. So um, didn't get too much uh, attention from what I saw on social media, but I thought he was, he was really, really solid. And I mean, he's still... 19 years old, youngest player on the pitch, and that's a huge occasion. So that's the kind of thing where you, you want these players to stand out. And um, I thought that he did. Michael, last thing on PSG, you mentioned that they may need to look at a different approach if they're to have a slightly easier time out of possession, dare I say, it, in the latter stages of the Champions League, should they reach those stages. And I just wonder what you think that could look like. Using Messi as my starting point here and perhaps not wanting him to be tasked with covering or ignoring attacking fullbacks, that would that would suggest maybe a move inside to a withdrawn number nine role, a false nine role, of course, which we saw him play so well, well, so many years ago now. Uh, could Mbappe and Neymar work well as sort of wide forwards, galloping in behind, making sort of out-to-in runs with Messi feeding them? Would that maybe work a little bit better out of possession as well with those two more capable of tracking back flying fullbacks? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I think it probably would. I mean, they've just got more energy than Messi. Whether they're the most disciplined is is another question. But, you know, like I said, I don't think Neymar's terrible in terms of mucking in and doing his defensive bit. And we know that Mbappe has played wide to good effect for for France in particular. Isn't always covering his fullback, but does at least 
uh, occupy a position and then can roll forward on the counter-attack mm. and still play his part in the attack. The other thing I wonder whether you could do with pretty much the same players as last night is, is shift to a 4-3-1, move someone like Ander Herrera more to a right-sided role, move Messi and field to, to be a number 10, and then ask Neymar to come back and, and defend the left flank. Uh, Kyle Walker doesn't overlap that much these days, so I don't think that would be much of an issue. And then if, if Messi is not going to play his part without the ball, I think I'd rather Rodri have time on the ball than Cancelo have time on the ball. You know, Rodri's a good player. I don't think he's really going to hurt you in possession. But Cancelo, his passes have just been so good in the last mm. couple of games. And it's almost it's almost like a, a Liverpool with Trent Alexander-Arnold. You know, you, he's just a player you can't afford to leave unmarked because he is really the, the deep-line playmaker for this yeah. side. One amazing pass through to Sterling, who'd made a run yeah. from the right forward position. And it just split. It seemed to split six PSG defenders, uh, and the the vision and execution was sensational. Uh, let's have some general Manchester City thoughts because pretty good performance, you have to say, even in defeat last night. And that's been a theme since that opening day loss to Tottenham Hotspur. City haven't conceded a goal in the Premier League. They've won four out of five with just a nil-all draw against Southampton. The the blot on the copybook since then, and truly a statement win at Stamford Bridge, one which you wrote about early this week. Yeah, I thought their pressing was just sensational. As good a pressing performance as I've seen in the Premier League. Completely prevented Chelsea from building anything. Um, and that, I thought it was quite impressive considering that was the start of a week where they were away at Chelsea, away at PSG and away at Liverpool. I mean, that's a pretty testing schedule. And they were prepared to use up a lot of energy in that game. The only thing I'd say is that considering they're so dominant, City didn't really create that much against Chelsea and mm. the goal came from quite a lucky source you know a deflection things opened up at 1-0 and Chelsea had to push forward but I still think the lack of a central strike is an issue it's mm. it's such an obvious issue that everyone can say it's an issue <laughs> and it becomes almost a bit of a cliche and people think it's kind of very simplistic analysis but you know they've lost Sergio Aguero Gabriel Jesus has, has often played up front now is, is seen as a, a right winger and I just think they miss someone in the box who can turn, you know, quarter chances into half chances and get a shot away. And to be fair, Jesus did that quite well for the goal um, at Stamford Bridge. It was deflected, but he created the space well. But he's not often in that position. He's often starting from the right. And I do think that will cost City at some point, you know, later in the season. I was chatting to um, Jack Pitbrook at, at the Arsenal-Tottenham game. Jack's our, our, one of our Tottenham writers, but is a Manchester City fan. I think he is uh, quite open about that. And he said he was saying to me, "Well, City have often played their best football over the last couple of years without a central striker." Mm. And I completely agree with that. But I, I kind of think that's the point: is when you're not playing your best football, that that's when you need someone. That's when you need someone in the box to be a bit more basic, slightly more direct, and just have a a real uh, permanent presence there. Um, and look, City's defensive record has, has been fantastic. And like I say, I, I think they were the better side against PSG last night, but. They they have they have got a pretty glaring weakness there, and the player who scored most of the well the top goal scorer last year was was Gundogan, who isn't in this side at the moment, who isn't there to make these runs, and I do think they miss some some attacking threat basically. I've been surprised by um, just how much Jack Grealish actually played to start the season. I thought, yeah, I mean, we all know how 
how often Pep looks to rotate his players. And uh, I think Farron Torres started the season quite a lot and has seen his minutes cut off recently. Um, perhaps the same with, with Sterling as well. But uh, in the league, at least, Grealish has played all but 20 minutes, um, which for a, I'd imagine for a kind of new Pep signing, but in the first six games at his new club, that's probably quite rare, especially for a, an attacking player as well. You're probably more likely to see that with, you know, a centre-back or a goalkeeper. So um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested from that, like how, just how much like Pep trusts Grealish or how much he's probably enjoying what he's seeing and seeing that he's actually being a very, very useful asset. Um, and yeah, I think that he's, he's not really been spoken about too much, but I think he's, he's slotted in fairly well and his numbers look decent. Um and I think part of the worry with Grealish and this City team would be that he'd slow play down, but that's not really looked like much of an issue. Um, he's just been a bit of a kind of defender magnet at times and pulled open spaces for other players. And we don't have a real great way of measuring that at the moment, but um, it's definitely something that he's doing and he's doing well. Well, it's been a very good few weeks for them, uh, that's for sure. And I-, I suppose there's an extent, Michael, to which completely correct to flag their key issue even if it is an obvious one and and a fairly long-term one at this stage but uh, as far as biggest problems that Premier League clubs have they're still in pretty good shape in general and and I wonder whether having been fairly strong on your pre-season opinion of of Chelsea being more likely tied to winners perhaps uh, how much that changed just based on the way that that game played out on Saturday. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, Chelsea haven't been good in the last three games. I think against Aston Villa, they were very lucky to win. Tottenham, I thought they were outplayed in the first half as well. Um, so, yeah, it's changed changed a little bit. Um, I'd say Liverpool really are probably looking slightly stronger than I would have expected as well at this stage. But um, I think in general, Lukaku has been such a, a key player in most games. He wasn't particularly prominent against City, I understand that. But um, I think Lukaku's strength really will be in the uh, in the more winnable games, if you like. There's certain games where you're at home and you're against a side that is going to sit back and defend. And we know that Southampton did that very successfully against Manchester City a couple of weeks ago, Chelsea playing Southampton this weekend. I think Lukaku is the player for those situations. Um, and I don't think that well, City don't have anyone in that mould. In games against big sides, you can probably play without a striker. You're playing against higher defences, you can play better combination football. But I think you, you do at times need a, a central presence in there and I think City might rue the loss you know the lack of one I mean let's be honest Guardiola can cope without a central striker we've seen that throughout his career but they spent August going for Harry Kane and then Cristiano Ronaldo they obviously wanted a player in that mould and they don't have one this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Okay, let's turn the page and check in with one of the Premier League's newest managers. Uh, we're going to talk about Wolverhampton Wanderers. I now feel the need to say that in full every time, which uh, could come back to haunt me. Uh, we're going to talk about how they've started the season under new manager Bruno Lage. Their record is two wins, zero draws, four defeats. A bit up and down results-wise, a bit more bad than good, you have to say, at this stage. But it all feels a bit early season and early managerial tenure, I suppose. And and so, Tom, I guess we're probably more interested at this point in time in performances rather than results to give, to give us a steer on, on how things might shake out. What have you made of Wolves so far this season? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously six games is a, a small sample and games are influenced by red cards and game state and all this stuff. But if we look at kind of the overarching non-penalty XG uh, metrics both for and against and XG difference. Um, it's it's interesting both in terms of like what the numbers show versus reality, and then also what the numbers show from different providers. So I've looked at the numbers for um, for Wolves this season uh, in terms of their XG four, um, and with Opta, with Opta they are I think one point seven XG per ninety, which is the third best in the league. Um, and stats bombs, which I think includes penalties, but shouldn't change it too much, they're the tenth best attack going forward. So depending on the model you use there, I think the narrative changes completely. Um, either they're the third best attacking team in the league or they're distinctly average. It's the same defensively as well, where you've got um, Optus numbers have them as the second best side in terms of XG, XG against with 0.72 XG. Stats bombs numbers have them seventh best. Uh, and then overall, Optus numbers roughly pin them around plus one, um, XG per 90 uh, third best in the league and Statsman has them around seventh so there's some they're not completely comparable because one has penalties and one doesn't but I just find it quite interesting that I mean two two zero four, like you say for wins draws and, and losses doesn't really reflect the performances that we've seen so far this season and I think actually this is a far improved Wolf side under Bruno Large than under um, Nuno Espirito Santo Does that more or less tally with what you've seen so far Michael? Yeah, I mean, they were they almost became the new Brighton in the first couple of uh, games of the season because they they were creating so many chances and just not scoring the goals. And you know, when it's um, when it's an individual who's getting chances but not scoring goals, we all, we always say he just needs one to go in off his backside. Mm. And I thought their their two 0 win at Watford was the kind of collective version <laughs> of one going in off the backside because the first one was. Just an absolutely crazy own goal from Sierra Alta, just absolutely out of nothing. And then the second from Huang was just a really, really scrappy goal from about two yards. I think it was about the third bite of the cherry that Wolves had had. So, yeah, they've been playing well. They've been looking good. And um, I, I think he's done a decent job, actually, Elijah. Um, I, I thought he'd change the system completely. I thought he would just say, you know, draw a line in the sand and move away from the 3-4-3. Three, three. But... Clearly, he feels they've got players to, to suit that system. So in terms of the formation, it's not too different from what Nuno was doing. But yeah, there is a more positive approach and um, they're, they're a lot more watchable. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And we see that from the metrics, they're definitely quicker at attacking upfield versus last season. Uh, they have a higher proportion of possession in the final third. Um, and I think they're pressing a bit more aggressively too. So I think all those things combined definitely... You know they correlate with with fun and enjoyment, uh, and that's what we're seeing with with this version of, of Wolves. Fun and enjoyment makes me think of one 
Wolves player in particular, probably one of the players in the Premier League, dare I say, at world football that sort of captures the imagination of neutral fans more than anyone, and that's Adama Traore. I think it's hard to think of a player that the wider football public want to reach the very top level more than Adama. Uh, how's Larger using him, Tom? How's he started this season? I think he's been playing on the left far more than he has previously. Um, and I think he's also featured a bit more up top as well. Um, so like positionally, things are, things have changed. But I think just pure numbers wise, I mean, we try not to just read off stats in this podcast because that's not really the best medium for it. But I hope you'll, you'll forgive me for some of these because I think the the change we've seen year on year with Adama is, is quite staggering, quite frankly. Um, so his take-ons have gone from... 7.9 per 90, which, you know, is a lot. It's probably the most of any player last season, maybe apart from Alan St. Maximan. Um, he's now attempting 12 per 90. It's more than anyone else in Europe. And, I mean, Neymar attempted 10 per 90 last season, and that was more than anyone. So 12 is just, frankly, ridiculous. Um, his his completion rate in terms of, you know, beating a man and retaining the ball in these take-ons has gone from 66%, which is, is good, to 80%. So to be able to have that volume of take-ons and still retain the ball, what, nearly a, a 10, 10 times out of 12, uh, again, crazy. Um, his touches in the attacking third have gone from 26 per game to 38. So he's nearly getting 50% more of the ball in the areas that matter, which for a, a player like Traore, um, you know, is is important um, and shows that, you know, that is one big thing for Larger to do is to get your attacking players on the ball and the attacking third more and have more opportunities to create and threaten. And he's done that with him. And then in terms of his, his actual shooting and creating, I mean, he's having 2.8 shots per 90. He was having one and a half um, before. Uh, his touch in the box have doubled from 3.8 to 7.7. Um, his XG is has tripled 0.08 to 0.25 and his XA is slightly better 0.18 per 90 to, to 0.21 so this is like taking a player of Adama's quality and dropping into an extremely attacking side uh, giving him more possessions more ability to, to threaten and create like I said but he's not moved teams I mean Larger's got largely the same group of players and he's just made you know he's just given Adama more of the ball and I think that is very, very exciting and he's putting up a lot of great numbers that hopefully will turn into more solid goals and assists in the near future. Yeah, like Tom says, it's been interesting to see his his different role. I mean, against Spurs, um, was that the opening game of the season? The second game of the season, maybe. He was very dangerous down the left. I thought he was a key player in that game. Had a one-on-one, hit it straight at Lloris. We know that often he does take a while to turn his threat into goals over the course of the season. Here's Manchester United where Wolves were the better side and lost 1-0. He was more of a threat through the middle. It was a great dribble for a Jimenez chance. Um, but it feels like he's getting the ball earlier. It's interesting that Tom mentions the stats there because that's that's how it feels having watched them. Neves and Moutinho seem, seem to be playing the ball over the top a little bit more for him to run onto, which weirdly I don't think of him doing that much under Nuno. I thought of him getting the balls for, for dribbles, which he's still doing, but he seems, he seems to be a bit more of a a direct, very quick threat in behind the defence now this season as well. So, yeah, he seems to be someone who's been a little bit rejuvenated under the new manager. Sounds like a, a few thumbs up, really, for Larger and, and Wolves and Adama Traore at this stage. So hopefully the results will start to fall in line with that. Let's talk about Brighton and Hove Albion. Uh, four wins, one draw, one defeat for them through six games. So a really strong start to the campaign, even if uh, in not beating Crystal Palace on Monday night, they failed to reach the summit. Michael, you wrote about 
Brighton recently a large piece titled How Good Are Graham Potter's Brighton? What were your findings? Yeah, large piece, but not a large piece. <laughs> no, that was just done that segment. Yeah, it was... Um... Sometimes cider. <laughs> yeah. Um, me and, and Mark Carey had a, a look at them and it's difficult really to see what they're doing particularly different from last season. We know that last season they, they were kind of hard done by when you looked at the expected goals. This season, going into the game against Palace, they were really punching above their weight. I think they've been quite fortunate in a couple of games. Um, but I think really that's the that's the thing to admire about Potter. He he has just stuck to his guns. He's doing pretty much a, a very similar thing. Not much has termed, uh, changed in terms of the the team. They've had uh, Cucciarelli come in on the left flank. I think he's been pretty positive driving forward, a more natural left-footed uh, left wing-back option than they had before. I also really admire how they've replaced Ben White without... Replacing him, they they brought back Duffy from loan. I actually completely forgot that Duffy was out on loan at Celtic last year. He's come back into the side, and not only has looked pretty solid defensively, but he's contributed going forward with a, a great headed goal um, in one of the games. Was it Watford? I think it was against. I mean, the things that Brighton have done well. We talk so much about their possession play because they're so patient in their build up. Um, but actually, the the two most impressive things I think have been one the set piece threat. I think it's brought them three goals this year. Mark came up with a stat that they'd uh, they had the highest percentage in the Premier League so far of turning um, corners into chances. Um, and the other thing was their pressing. Mm. They they're very good at winning the ball high up, um, and have created a couple of chances for for big goals. One certainly was in that Watford game that Mope scored. Um, so yeah, I, I, the story really is that there's not too much of a, a story. They're not doing anything particularly different. There's just been some variance in the results. I think it's a bit of a shame that um, they didn't beat Palace uh, on Monday. I don't say that as... Uh, I very much like Crystal Palace, but it would have been the first time ever in their history that Brighton would have been top of the, the Football League. Mm. And I just think that would have been incredible considering where they've come from a few years ago. Tom, I hope you're celebrating the fact that Michael just used the word variance, which I'm pretty sure is the first time on this podcast. And just, you know, those memes where it's like, tell me Pep Guardiola's not having a huge influence on English football, but it's you (laughs) and we're and we're talking about football discourse and we're using variance and we all know what that means now. Uh, On that note, it's it's easy and it's quite fun when you talk a lot about the numbers like you do, like we do, to lean on the fact that Brighton are reaping somewhat what they sowed last season in terms of underperforming their XG, in terms of general performance levels being high and and maybe waiting for the variance. At the same time, there is a a very interesting rolling XG graph in the piece that Michael and Mark and Andy Naylor, excellent Brighton writer uh, in their piece. And it sort of raises concerns, small concerns, that Brighton's underlying numbers, the famous underlying numbers, aren't that good uh, and perhaps on the decline ever so slightly, uh, especially when you consider they've had a relatively easy start to the season fixtures-wise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, definitely in terms of that that variance, they are getting a bit of, of luck both, you know, going forwards and scoring. I think they've scored eight goals from about 6xG. And then in terms of conceding as well, conceding five goals from 7.3xG. So last season they would have been under on both of those you know they would have scored fewer and, and and conceded more in this season it's the other way around and that's just that's just the nature of variance and how the kind of 
got you know goals in real life for and against actually re- correlate to uh, to the expected and underlying numbers. But yeah, that that rolling graphic I found quite interesting, and it's not actually one that I'd seen or kind of refresh until I read the piece from kind of the end of last season. And you do see a bit of a a downswing in an attacking sense and a bit of an upswing in a in a defensive sense. And you know I think it goes to show that maybe. Brighton aren't as good as they were at, at points last season. I mean, these graphics are always influenced by the strength of the schedule, and of course, performances in those matches are, are a, a result of the quality of players you have available as well. So, I think they've now got a fully fit squad. You'd hope that they would kick on and actually start to to create a bit more um, and you know concede fewer fewer chances. So, I think they're maybe not as good as they were last season so far. Um, but all things considered, I mean, it's a very very positive start to the season and for Brighton always I think the aim isn't to finish mid-table or get in Europe it's probably just to survive and incrementally get that little bit better and to pick up as many points as they have what have they got um, 13 points mm. so far this season I mean that's a very very uh, good way of uh, of you know collecting points early and staving off the threat of relegation come the end of the season yeah it, it should feel like a very different season no matter how they end up Points-wise, it should feel like a different season just because the very fact that they're already what, 10 points above the relegation zone or something like that at the moment can, compared to last season where they were kind of always looking over their shoulder. There's also a couple of really interesting quotes from Dan Ashworth, who's the technical director at Brighton. And they really stood out to me because you'd be forgiven for crowing somewhat about a start to the season, four wins in their first five as it was, uh, and trying to you know, maybe show off a little bit while the the eyes of the wider media are on you after a hot start. But Ashworth's quotes were, football's such a low-scoring game, the margins are so fine. When we played Brentford away and Burmo cuts inside Veltman and his shot goes just wide, Trossard cuts inside and his one goes in. We won that game 1-0, we could have lost that game 1-0. Leicester, those two offside goals might not go our way. I felt we had a bit of bad luck last season with VAR, but we haven't done anything drastically different. We believe in Graham and the processes, the recruitment, the training, everything we do, and it's going for us at the moment. There were times last year it didn't go for us, and there'll be times this season that it doesn't go for us. That's what happens in a relatively low-scoring sport, but we do believe in what we're trying to do, and we hope it gets us enough points to achieve our goals. Not hugely bullish certainly not crowing there tom you can feel the process oozing out of every pore every word and that really does reflect the club as a whole yeah i think it's it's interesting i mean ashworth has done a couple of of kind of public things in the last 18 months um and they're all seemingly along the same lines of kind of you know trust the process we believe what we're doing um and yeah, I think it just goes to show that they had ultimate confidence in in Graham Potter when things were going a bit south last season. Um, you know, up to the board level, there's no real panic. And I don't know how many clubs across all of you know the football league, um, maybe even you know the the top five leagues or even world football, who would have that level of reassurance and calmness in the face of the results that they they were having. And now they're kind of like you say, Ali, they're they're. Um, reaping from what they were the sowing performance-wise last season, so yeah, it's um, it's really positive. I think this is a, a team that is always going to keep building. I think for Potter as well, there's no real um, like what is the appetite to move to a, another club. Um, I think he has all the the kind of power he perhaps would want here, and also the kind of lack of politics that you get at, at bigger clubs, which jobs he's been linked to in the past. So I think yeah, Brighton are very very solid foundations, and it's only going to be 
be positive from here. And like he says, there'll be upswings, there'll be downswings. But as long as you're kind of slowly growing and and and, and bettering yourself day by day, that's um, all you can really ask for. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The last team we want to discuss is Brentford. I talk about reaping and sowing. I mean, they spent about five years sowing in the championship before finally becoming the reapers. Uh, so far, they're the highest performing promoted side. And I think delighting fans and neutral observers alike with just their start to the campaign performances-wise and also some of the games that they've been involved with, which have been high octane, really exciting stuff. Tom, what have you made of Brentford's start to the season? Really, really promising. Um, probably surprised me a lot in, in terms of just how well they've adapted to the Premier League and um, I'm kind of surprised at, at just how easy they made it look at times and it's like they've been in the Premier League for years but I guess that's what you maybe would expect for a team similar to Brighton who've been planning of, of how to kind of make this jump and stay there um, for many many seasons um, I think the defensively you know I think they've got the top three XG against numbers going forwards they look decent Um but I think that what has been interesting is just kind of how much they've changed style-wise compared to kind of last season. So looking at some of their, their metrics in the Championship versus in the Premier League, um, they are having kind of what we'd call, I guess, build-up possessions. So how many possessions where you have 10 or more passes um, just in a game. They were having 9.9 .9 of those in the Championship last year. They're having 4.7 in the Premier League this season. Um, that's obviously influenced by the fact the quality of opposition is better and you can't impose yourself as much in games but they've actually had to go more direct and we're seeing that I mean their their direct speed of how quickly they move up the pitch is uh, far quicker than it was last season um, and in terms of the number of kind of passes they have in a possession on average they've gone from I think five on average to just over three so they've had to change an approach and I think for a manager to do that in a single summer and do it kind of relatively quickly with a similar, you know, not too drastically different group of players to what he had in the championship last season um, is really positive for Thomas Frank and shows his, you know, his coaching abilities. We started off the the episode talking about PSG and, and, and how do you fit all these players in and it's not saying that Mauricio Pochettino is a bad coach, but it's obviously a very difficult thing at times to completely change the style of play and the kind of philosophy. Mm. And this isn't a complete change, but Frank has made certain tweaks that have meant that his side have adapted to the Premier League well. And I mean, you you probably bank on them being safe come the end of the season based on what we've seen so far. I think the the tweaks before the big tweak, if you will, in order to be ready for this and to play like this, did start 
maybe a little more subtly uh, while they were in the championship. Certainly on a recruitment level, for a few windows, Brentford recruited bigger, stronger, beefier, genuinely bigger players and probably with uh, a stronger defensive side to their game than some of the more skillful, possession-friendly players that they had previously. And we saw that shift in the championship probably over 18 months or so um, after Thomas Frank had had really got his feet under the table. Uh, And I suspect, given that, like Brighton, you know, you're suggesting that we can pretty much assume that most things Brentford do have been very well planned and thought out. I think that would have been a, a targeted approach. Certainly uh, a bit of a shift after they lost their playoff final to, to Fulham. But I think something that might make the numbers not skewed, but a little less precise from last season is that they played 4-3-3 for the first two thirds of the campaign. I don't think the switch to the current 3-5-2 from 4-3-3 was necessarily something that was beautifully planned out and mapped out months in advance. It, it was a reaction to poor form, which had seen them drop away from the automatic promotion race. I think they, they only won three games in about 10. Uh, and after a run of four draws in six, they changed it up. Uh, and I think that's an impressive part of Frank's um, management over the last few years with Brentford is that when he's had to, and dare I say it, when he's come under a bit of pressure, the changes that he's made, sometimes fairly drastic uh, tactical changes, have generally um, come out with the, with the, the, the team itself getting better. So, uh, you know, I, I think certainly in terms of the direct play and less uh, patient build-up, that has to be a big function of, of league quality, as you say. But also of the players that they have now, um, they don't necessarily have a Ben Rama, who it makes sense to play on the left side of a 4-3-3 um, to patiently build up possession. And for years, they were defined by patient possession and the goal of it was to build wide overloads and get the best out of Ben Rama and to get him into the best positions to do what he does best, create or score goals um, in the final third. So it would be the left-back Rico Henry, the left-winger Saeed Ben Rama, and then the left central midfielder, who was mostly Josh De Silva, you would notice if you watched them over and over that they were constantly trying to find those three combining and creating overloads in wide areas. And generally, it would end up with a with a Ben Rama whipped cross, or which Watkins would benefit from, uh, or he'd cut in and, and shoot himself as he loves to do. And now in the three five two, that's not really possible with the personnel and dare I say it, with the team shape. So uh, it's fascinating to see for me. I definitely think the seeds of this have been sown fairly consistently over the last 12 to 18 months, um, but it's pretty cool to see it come to fruition. And of course, in terms of set pieces, Michael particularly, uh, another team like Brighton, who we consider to have a pretty data-driven approach, these sorts of teams seem to be able to find weaknesses uh, and create chances from set piece situations as well, more than maybe others. Yeah, they did that very well against Liverpool, um, particularly the goal, the second goal. Yanel, I think, was the one who scored it, where it was almost... A, I think we're seeing more goals like this, whereas the second phase of the set piece, where the ball initially gets cleared, and the defending side, their their attackers kind of think, well, that's my job done, shift forward up the pitch. But the attacking side's defenders stay up. Burnley are very good at this. They're not always that prolific from the first mm. ball, but when it gets cleared, you get me and Tarkovsky staying up and they always overload defenders who have been left a little bit isolated by the others. And Brentford seems to be very good at doing that and they were particularly good at doing it at the far post against um, Alexander-Arnold, who um, you know is a great player, obviously not... I don't think he's as weak defensively as people think in terms of on the ground, but in the air, he's, he's obviously not the tallest, not the strongest. And... Um, 
yeah, they exploited that a couple of times. I think off the back of those set pieces, one stat which I found really interesting is the number of goals that have been scored in a six-yard box so far this season. Um, and I mean, Man City have the most with six, and we know the way that City like to attack is uh, somehow create a cutback for someone to, to try and tap it in in that area. And to do that, and the way that City play, you have to have the best you know, tactically intelligent and, and technically skilled players in the world, and it costs a lot of money to do that. Um, Brentford, on the other hand, have scored five goals in that area, and they've got the same XG that City have in the six-yard box. Um, they've only had nine shots to City's 14, but I think the quality of those, therefore, is is a, a lot higher on average. And that obviously speaks to the quality of, of Brentford's um, set pieces and their ability to kind of manufacture shots in the six-yard box, which are very hard to consistently create. Um, if you look at kind of strikers and, and players in general and their shot maps, the odd shots you will see in the six-yard box are kind of scrambles and it's hard to kind of repeat those game on game and, and uh, always rely on that as a good source of, of shots. Whereas for Brentford, it seems like, you know, the set pieces, the way that they've set up, they've identified that as a, as a means of value and it means you can create kind of similar quality chances for a tenth of the cost of the squad. Mm. And I think that that is, is really, really exciting and that is probably going to be their their legacy dare I say it come the end of the season come a few seasons time we're starting to see it now with more set piece coaches but you know if you start seeing numbers like that and the way that they're doing it and realize it is possible you don't have to be Man City to do those things um, I think that's um, yeah it's it's kind of mad but off the back of that even Tony's stats as well have been quite interesting for me this season where he's got 2.2 expected assists but only one XG and I think a lot of his value so far has been kind of being that kind of flick on merchant and someone who's getting the ball into those good areas in in the box and kind of using his size to occupy defenders and try and you know move the ball on mm. um, and that maybe wasn't what I quite expected when going into it thinking he'd have you know better slightly better chance uh, getting numbers in terms of XG and less so in terms of XA but um, yeah he's been really really good so far this season and I thought he was he was excellent against Liverpool at the weekend well maybe that's to come Tom the development uh, of Ivan Tony as a Premier League player is a story that has only just started to be told I'm pretty sure of that uh, and Michael lastly on, on Brentford you've enjoyed the tactical approach of Thomas Frank but it was also something he said after their three-all draw with Liverpool that really got your juices flowing as well yeah I just thought it was interesting you know it in the closing stages, there was a bit where it was it was three all, and I think both sides had a chance in the space of thirty seconds. And Klopp and Frank just had a look at each other on the touchline, thinking like, "Wow, this is pretty good." And Frank came out afterwards and and said, "Yeah, if anything, the, the game was a little bit too open for his liking." Mm. And I mean, this isn't really a criticism of him or a, a comment on Brentford, but that's one of the great things about football that you know. The manager plans a certain strategy, but the game can just take on a life of its own. And, and you know, the, the game is about the players. It's not about someone on the touchline trying to control everything. Mm. And I thought it was interesting in relation to something that Julian Nagelsmann said uh, last week or maybe the week before, where he was saying that he, he would quite like uh, his players to have earpieces, like I believe they do in the NFL, so that he can feed them instructions during games. And personally, I, I just... I don't like the the sound of that because I I don't think the manager should be controlling absolutely everything on the pitch. Mm. And Brentford against Liverpool maybe was the best game we've seen so far in this Premier League season. And it's because the game took on a life of its own. The players almost got carried away. 
And I just think if you have a situation where the manager controls everything, as Frank admitted, the game was too open for him. So I don't want earpieces because I want games like that. It's a no from us, Nagelsmann. Okay, brilliant. Well, great to hear your thoughts on Brentford and their start to Premier League life, on Brighton developing further under Graham Potter and and Bruno Lage's Wolverhampton Wanderers, as well as Manchester City and their game against Paris Saint-Germain last night in the Champions League. A a very enjoyable notebook-style podcast. Guys, thank you so much for joining me for it. Looking forward to next week's episode already. So please, if you've enjoyed this one, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed. You can get them as soon as they drop. You can listen ad-free on the Athletic site as well. Of course, that's where you'll read all of Michael and Tom's work and so much other good stuff as well. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the place to go to get a third off an annual subscription. And that'll be it for us this week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Let us know what you think about what we've discussed today. Any ideas for future episodes, pod topics, if you will, just hit us up on Twitter. Always good to hear from you. Otherwise, thanks for listening and join us again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.